0: Section 22 of Seven Roman Statesmen of the Later Republic by Charles Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 8. Pompey. Part 2. Leaving Spain at last pacified, Pompey set out for Italy in the spring of B.C. 71. On his return journey, he was fortunate enough to run into the midst of the wrecks of the army of Spartacus. After their defeat by Crassus and the death of their leader, the rebels were flying towards the Alps, but met the Spanish legions in Liguria, and there were cut to pieces. It was now for the third time that Pompey came victorious to the gates of Rome with a loyal army of veterans who would have followed him on any enterprise. Sulla's troops who came over from Greece in B.C. 83 were not more devoted to their leader or more ready to attack any enemy that he might point out to them. The Senate might well tremble, for they had done their best to provoke Pompey by their palpable neglect of the Spanish war and their persistent refusal to grant money and reinforcements to him for the last five years. They had no force to oppose him, for Metellus, the other commander in Spain, had disbanded his legions, and Crassus, who had put down the servile revolt, was known to be even worse disposed toward the senate than pompey himself there were only three possible ways out of the situation the two generals old personal enemies as we have seen when dealing with the life of crassus might fall to blows and fight for the sovereignty of italy or one of them in jealousy of the other might espouse the cause of the senate or they might agree to sink their private enmity and join in an attack on the optimates and the constitution of sulla as we have already had to relate it was the last and the least likely of these three alternatives that came to pass pompey did not attempt to fight his way to supreme power across the body of his rival crassus but joined with him to overthrow the senate he had long seen that the sullen constitution was too narrow and cramping for a man of his own ability and ambition He was flattered by the almost universal applause which he had won by ending the lingering war in Spain, flattered all the more, perhaps, because it must be confessed that Perpenna's dagger had given him the final triumph almost as much as his own sword. He owed the Senate no gratitude. A great body of the enemies of the Optimates, the rural knights, and municipal Italy in general, were ready to welcome him as their natural leader. Hence came his definitive acceptance of the place of leader of the anti-senatorial party and his alliance with Crassus. Probably he was, in the end, unwise to make their cause his own. He was reopening the floodgates of democracy when a democratic constitution was really more unsuited to him than the rule of an oligarchy. He was, in truth, by virtue of his orderly mind, his rather stolid virtue, his practical ability, uninspired by any spark of erratic genius, much more fitted to be the trusted general of the aristocracy than to be the leader of the turbulent mob of Rome. His reserved manners and his slow and uninspiring speech were enough in themselves to handicap him for the career of a democratic politician. But since the fathers, much as they feared him showed no wish to enlist him as their champion while their opponents were eagerly imploring him to become their chief he finally made the plunge and stood for the consulship along with crassus in the character of the friend of the people how he and his colleague abolished the laws of sulla and how they quarrelled from the first day to the last of their joint magistracy we have already told in another place when their office ran out both appear somewhat stranded on the shore of politics the position of an extemporised party leader when he has carried out his programme is always uncomfortable it is often forgotten that pompey sat quiet for two whole years b c sixty nine to sixty eight after laying down his consular fasces if any further proof had been needed to convince his friends and his enemies that he aspired to be the first general of the republic but not its master this voluntary retirement should have sufficed a would-be tyrant would not have spent so long a time without meddling in politics pompey was seldom seen in the forum or indeed in any public place when he did appear it was always with a considerable train of friends and clients who kept off from him the attentions of the populace for he hated the familiarity of the many and thought that true dignity is soiled by their touch. Instead of playing the demagogue and keeping himself perpetually in evidence, he lived quietly at home with his wife Musia and the three children that she had borne him. She was his third wife. He had divorced Antistia in B.C. 80 and married Aemilia, the niece of Sulla. She died after only six months of wedlock pompey then married mutia daughter of scyvola the consul of b c ninety five by her he had three children sextus and gnaeus the generals in the civil war and a daughter pompeia who married faustus sulla son of the dictator we need not say with dr mommsen that he played at this time the empty part of a pretender who had resigned his claims to a throne clearly he had never wished for that throne and was contented to dwell in rome as her greatest citizen till a crisis should again arise which might call him once more into the field as her greatest general in b c sixty nine to sixty eight no such crisis existed the second mithridatic war seemed to be going well in the capable hands of lucullus and there was no other trouble in hand which was important enough to call forth pompey from his retirement in b c 67 things began to change the exploits of lucullus ended miserably in the revolt of his legions and the loss of all his conquests the army of triarius was cut to pieces at zela and the light horsemen of mithridates once more appeared on the border of the roman provinces at the same time a famine began to rage in rome caused partly by a bad season but much more by the depredations of the pirates who at this moment were playing a more prominent part than ever before in mediterranean politics purporting to act as the allies of the king of pontus but really plundering for their own profit they were making every sea unsafe and even daring to make flying descents on italy where spartacus had first invited their presence and made them welcome though their base of operations lay far to the east in crete and cilicia they were habitually to be found cruising off spain and Narbonese gaul since the incapable marcus antonius creditus had failed in his attempts to put them down in b c seventy four they had been practically left unmolested by the roman state and the boldness caused by this impunity was making them almost as daring as those algerine rovers of the seventeenth century whose voyages extended as far as kinsale and reykjavik the senate might yet have remained torpid had it not been that the non-arrival of the african and egyptian corn fleets in a year of dearth drove the people to riots and outbreaks which could not be disregarded something had to be done but this something might have been nothing more than the appointment of one more aristocratic incapable to raise a fleet if public opinion had not intervened the moment that an expedition against the pirates was mooted there was a general cry for pompey the one available commander whose efforts were always crowned with success the democratic leaders of the day quinctius gabinius and the young gaius julius caesar were quick to grasp the spirit of the times and saw that an attack on the senate for its maladministration must be accompanied by a proposal to place the charge of the pirate war in the hands of the man whom the people trusted hence came the sudden and vehement agitation for the appointment of pompey to a special command against the pirates which took shape in the gabinian law of b c sixty seven he himself is said to have shown no great enthusiasm for the proposal and to have required much pressure before he lent it his support there is no reason to accuse him as does dr Momsen of hypocrisy he had no great knowledge of naval affairs and may have doubted his own capacity to deal with a maritime problem. Moreover, the pirates must have seemed a despicable enemy to one who had contended with Sertorius. Nor is it to be forgotten that Gabinius and Caesar were no friends of Pompey, and that they were both regarded as rather reckless and disreputable politicians. It may have displeased him to receive a boon from such hands, and to feel that his popularity was being exploited for the benefit of a pair of demagogues. It is at all events certain that he studiously kept out of the agitation, and even withdrew from Rome on the day when the Gabinian law was put before the assembly. Evidently, he wished to show that the command was unsolicited by him, and that if he accepted it, he only did so in deference to the strongly expressed wish of the people. The bill, indeed, was somewhat startling in its details. There had been previous grants of special commission to various generals in the imbecile Antonius, had seven years before been given a command of this same sort against the pirates but the gabinian law was on a much larger scale than anything of the kind that had been seen before pompey was to be given the Iquum imperium over all roman territory that lay within fifty miles of the sea that is he was to possess equal power with all other provincial governors in their own spheres throughout the greater part of the empire for there was not a province whose larger half was not situated within the prescribed distance from the shore the roman empire was still essentially a domination over the mediterranean littoral and the broad inland was for the most part still unconquered to control such a wide-spreading field of action pompey was to be granted twenty-four lieutenants of senatorial rank whom he might select for himself each of them was to be given praetorial power and insignia a magnificent grant of money no less than one hundred and forty four million sesterces or one million three hundred and fifty thousand pounds was set aside for his military chest he was authorized to raise men and ships up to any amount that he chose as far as the enormous figures of one hundred and twenty thousand men and five hundred galleys As a matter of fact, he did not find it necessary to levy anything like so large a force. The term of his command was to be for no less than three years. For a man who wished to be king, all the essentials of a military monarchy were thus provided. But Pompey had no desire for throne or diadem, and this, we cannot doubt, was well known to shrewd observers of his character like Caesar and Gabinius, or they would not have put the temptation in his way. It was not so obvious to the optimates, who made as loud and frantic a protest as if a tyrant was being openly voted into the capital. They urged that the command was too extensive for one man, and that a colleague should be appointed to take some of the burden off the great general's shoulders. We are invited to believe that when Roscius Oto urged that Pompey should be given a colleague, the roar of no was so loud that a bird flying above fell down stunned upon the heads of the citizens nor was it to any effect that the oligarchic tribune trebellius was induced to interpose his veto gabinius scared him by threatening to deal with him as tiberius gracchus had dealt with octavius sixty-six years before and when he saw the tribes actually called upon to vote for his deposition trebellius collapsed and withdrew his proposed veto As a last move, the optimates strove in vain to get Pompey-given lieutenants nominated by the Senate instead of by himself. An ingenious way of seeing that his orders should not be too zealously carried out, the proposal was rejected with scorn. The Gabinian law, therefore, was passed and Pompey received carte blanche to deal with the pirates as might seem best to him. It is easy to detract from the credit which he received for the very thorough way in which he executed his commission. His enemies have taken care to point out that the fighting power of the corsairs was insignificant compared with that of the Roman Empire, and that they had only survived so long, because they had hitherto been opposed by commanders of approved incapacity. The suppression of the pirates was a great relief to the state, but not a great achievement, writes Dr. Momsen. It was a naive proceeding to celebrate such a razzia as a victory but this is not the true way to look at the campaign. A war is not easy merely because the enemy is not able to face the assailant in a pitched battle. To make an end of a swarm of guerrillas is no light matter, and the guerrilla at sea is even more hard to catch than the guerrilla on land. Pompey's suppression of the corsairs was a triumph of organization and ingenuity. He mapped out the Mediterranean into districts, and set moving at the same moment thirteen separate squadrons which all worked together and played into each other's hands in forty days the whole of the seas west of sicily had been completely cleared and corn was so cheap in the roman market that it was said that the very name of pompey had finished the war then the commander-in-chief went eastward with the best of his fleet and swept the aegean and levant there was no want of fighting no less than four hundred pirate ships of which ninety were fully equipped war galleys were captured ten thousand of the corsairs were slain in battle twice as many were captured the fastnesses of the Cilician coasts were one and all destroyed tens of thousands of prisoners were set free immense quantities of plunder recaptured The sea was freed from robbers as it had seldom been before since the beginning of authentic history. These are not achievements at which it is reasonable to scoff, but perhaps the most creditable item of the whole campaign is the fact that Pompey did not massacre his prisoners, but turned them into successful colonists in the maritime towns which he restored to life, Mollus, Adana, Dime, and his new foundation of Pompeopolis Soli no roman commander before him had done the like even caesar in the succeeding decade used the axe and the rods with cruel severity upon many a conquered foe he knew no mercy save for romans and citizens while pompey spared even the corsairs whom any other general would have doomed to the cross the gabinian law had allotted three years as the term of office of the great commissioner but no more than seven months had elapsed when he was able to report that his task was complete, and that piracy was suppressed throughout the Mediterranean. In the winter of 67 to 66 he finished up his work by restoring the Cilician cities, and organizing a system of coastguards to preserve the peace of the seas for the future. There is no reason to doubt that he intended to come home in the following spring, to surrender his command according to his invariable fashion, but he was not yet destined to leave the east a bill was brought in by the tribune gaius manilius to transfer to him the charge of the war against mithridates and the care of all the provinces of the east the genesis and object of the manilian law is rather obscure its author was not one of the acknowledged heads of the democratic party but a rather obscure personage who had just failed in some small political plans of his own and was apparently making a bid for renewed popularity by devising a scheme which should please the multitude he was neither a friend nor a partisan of pompey and certainly was not acting as his agent but he saw that at this moment pompey's name was the one to conjure with and that a certain amount of importance would accrue to himself if he could gain credit with the people as the advocate of their idol His proposal was reasonable in itself. The war with the Pontic King had proved a failure. Lucullus was in disgrace. Glabrio and Marcius Rex, who were to take up the command, had done nothing that made it probable that they would succeed where their able predecessor had failed. On the other hand, there was a general belief that to make over the war to Pompey would secure its prompt and successful conclusion. So clear was this that neither the leading Democrats nor the moderate optimates dared to say a word against the project. Cicero, whose main aim at this moment was always to make himself the mouthpiece of public opinion, gave the bill his warm support. Caesar also granted it his approval. Indeed, no one save a handful of irreconcilable conservatives ventured to oppose it. So popular was the scheme from the first moment that it was broached it became law almost by acclamation though there was hardly a prominent man in rome who would really have supported it had he been free to speak his mind without fear of the multitude yet as a mere measure of foreign policy it was the best thing that could have been devised there was no other man in rome whose reputation would have justified him in asking for the asiatic command the one fortunate general of tried ability was the proper person to send against the pontic king Pompey is reported to have received the news of the passing of the manilian law without any signs of elation and to have replied to the congratulations of his friends by complaining that the state gave him no time of leisure that he was hurried on from one task to another and hardly was suffered to get a glimpse of his home and his wife and children it would be better to be one of the undistinguished many he is said to have murmured than to be the one roman who was never granted a holiday Of course his adversaries could see nothing but the most contemptible hypocrisy in such a speech it is not necessary to think so badly of the man that pompey loved power we cannot deny he felt like lord carteret that it was his special avocation to go about knocking the heads of kings and princes together for the benefit of his country but it is equally certain that he loved his home and after finishing off a heavy task like the suppression of the pirates he might reasonably repine at being sent forth without a moment's respite to take in hand another which might lead him to the caucasus and the caspian perhaps even to the tannis or the erythraean sea the oriental campaigns of pompey occupied him for very nearly five years b c sixty six to sixty two it is easy to belittle his achievements in the east as his achievements against the pirates but to call his battles farces and his conquests military promenades is wholly unjust the enemy who had baffled lucullus was not to be despised the wild tribes of albania and iberia were not effeminate orientals the marches through the bleak armenian uplands and passes or across the burning sands of the arabian border were not simple or easy remembering all that pompey did and the apparent ease of his unending successes the reader is prone to forget how rome had failed before in these regions and how she was destined to fail again the army which he took with him was of no great strength little greater indeed than that with which sulla had conquered greece he never seems to have had more than forty thousand or forty five thousand men he was operating across utterly unknown country each successive enemy whom he had to face had different methods of fighting the devices that were useful against one were futile against another yet pompey went on in an absolutely uncheckered series of successes he was as cautious as he was enterprising as untiring as he was prudent he never desisted from a task that he had taken in hand but he never took in hand any task that was rash or unnecessary when he first marched against mithridates the old king was in possession of his whole kingdom and had an army that he had at last trained to face the methods of roman warfare by endless guerrilla tactics within a year he was not only beaten but expelled from his pontic realm his host had been not only scattered but annihilated by a sudden and brilliant night surprise which formed the unexpected termination of a cautious and careful campaign when mithridates had thought that he had been facing fabius he suddenly found that he had to do with hannibal all that was left to him was to fly overseas to his distant dependency in the crimea with tigron pompey did not have to fight at all he encouraged the parthians to assault armenia while he was himself engaged with the pontic king then he turned toward artazaxa after expelling mithridates the armenian monarch vexed by foreign war and internal rebellion refused to fight did homage to rome and paid a large war indemnity and resigned all his claims to his late conquests in syria and cilicia it does not detract in the least from pompey's merit that this adversary was so much impressed by his mere approach that he surrendered without a contest all that could have been asked from him after the most complete victory then came the turn of the wild tribes under caucasus who had been the vassals of the allies of mithridates in B.C. 65, the Roman army was pushed forward along the northern edge of Armenia and scoured the valley of the Kur, and then by a backward sweep that of the Phasus. The Albanians and Iberians came out against the invaders in full force. They staked the fords and barricaded the passes, tried to cut off the convoys, and fell upon outlying detachments, but it was to no effect. On every occasion, and even on the most favorable ground, they were repulsed. At last they made their submission, surrendered to Pompey the golden table and bed of their king, disowned Mithridates as overlord, and swore allegiance to Rome. Asia Minor and the lands behind it were now disposed of. Mithridates, it is true, still held out in the Crimea, but though overflowing with wrath against the Romans, he was practically powerless. It was in vain that he crushed his few remaining subjects with taxes and requisitions to raise a new army. He enrolled, it is true, some thousands of slaves and Scythians, and spoke of trying the fortune of war once more. But there was nothing to be feared from his menaces, for his troops were untrustworthy. He spoke of a wild plan of marching by land from the Tauric Chersonese to Italy, across the steppes of the Dnieper and the valley of the Danube. But this was a vain imagining. His mercenaries would not listen to the plan, and the tribes of the steppe would neither have followed him nor allowed him to pass he was eating out his heart in impotent wrath, slaying his sons and his generals for suspected treason and earning the bloody end that was soon to come upon him. The Pontic king, having become a negligible quantity, Pompey was able to turn his attention southward to Cilicia and Syria. These regions had been ceded to him by Tigron, their last owner, but the king's rule had always been disputed by the late subjects of the Seleucidae when the last armenian viceroy withdrew anarchy set in two princes both claiming to represent the old greek dynasty half a dozen arab emirs a local tyrant or two and the jewish king from jerusalem were filling the land with their futile strife the phoenician cities had declared themselves independent republics and the tribes of amanus were devastating every valley that was within reach of their fastnesses Pompey saw no way out of the chaos but annexation to rome it would have been absurd to set up again some representative of the Seleucidi, whose fratricidal civil wars had been the ruin of syria in the previous generation marching down from asia minor the great general occupied antioch and proclaimed the incorporation of syria and cilicia with the roman empire almost everywhere the change was welcomed as a happy deliverance from anarchy the cities and dynasts made their submission and little fighting was needed a mountain tribe or two had to be chastised the arabs were thrust back into their deserts and a handful of fanatical jewish patriots who shut themselves up in the temple of jerusalem were beleaguered and annihilated it was after storming this stronghold that pompey made his entrance sword in hand into the holy of holies and marvelled as josephus relates At the strange sanctuary of the jews where a bare room without an image and now even without an ark was set aside for the earthly abode of the invisible god of zion the roman proved a not ungenerous conqueror but the rabbis of the next generation and after them many a medieval chronicler loved to tell how he lost his good luck from the moment that he dared to draw aside the curtain and step across the fatal threshold. Hitherto, all had gone well with him. From B.C. 63 onwards, all was to be disillusion and disappointment. End of section 22.